Verse 1 of chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he did not go at the other times to seek for omens. But he set his face toward the wilderness, and when Balaam lifted up his eyes, he saw Israel camped tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered this oracle. This is the third oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Boor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open. Now notice how Balaam is getting to realize how powerful God truly is. And so with this oracle, he's making it clear that my eyes are opened up now. I'm beginning to realize how this God is completely different. The sad thing is Balaam is still never going to give his allegiance to Yahweh. The oracle, the one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, although falling flat on the ground with his eyes open, how beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, and your dwelling places, O Israel. They are like the valleys stretched forth, like the gardens by the riverside, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, and like cedar trees beside the waters. So he's basically seeing this camp. Now remember, this is the military camp of Yahweh. And he says, how beautiful are the homes of Yahweh. And he begins to describe them as if they're a garden. He's describing the camp of Israel, which looks like a bunch of brown and red tents in the middle of a desert. But when Balaam, Balaam sees it, he describes it like a garden. Because God is speaking through him, and that's the reality of what this is. It's a garden, not literally physically yet, but it is garden in the fact that Yahweh is with them, dwelling with them, and blessing them. And remember, that was the most important part of the garden. The garden wasn't the, the, the endless food. The endless food was just a byproduct of the fact that God was there and blessing them in other ways. This is what he describes as Israel like a garden. Verse 7, he will pour out the water out of his buckets, and their descendants will be like abundant water, and the king will be greater than Agag, and the kingdom will be exalted. Now, the idea of pouring the water out like buckets, that's going to be picked up by the prophets later. Uh, when the prophets begin to prophesy the coming king, they're going to start using that language like that, especially when you get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is going to have a vision of a river coming out of the temple. Verse 8, God brought them out of Egypt. They have, as it were, the strength of a young bull. They will devour hostile people. They will break their bones, and they will pierce them through the arrows, meaning that nothing will be able to stop them in military battle. They crouch and lie down like a lion, and a lioness who can stir him. Blesses the one who blesses you, and curses the one who curses you. So he continues that. He's describing the garden. So now he's going back to creation, comparing Israel to the garden, and then he goes forward again, and he goes back to Genesis 12, where God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, that's kind of a warning to Balak, because what is Balak trying to do to Israel right now? Curse them. So God kind of dropped a hint, 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 Balak, get ready for what's coming for you. You keep pressing me to curse my own people, and I made a promise to Abraham that anybody curses him will be cursed by me, Yours is coming. And so once again, this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, and it reminds them that God is honoring those things. Most of these first three oracles have been past-focused, mostly focused on the past and the present of what God is fulfilling for them. Verse 10, Then Balak became very angry at Balaam, and he struck his hands together, 
And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have done nothing but bless them these three times. So now go back where you came from. And I said that I would be greatly honored, I would greatly honor, but now Yahweh has stood in the way of your honor. He basically says three strikes you're out. Three is kind of a number, it represents redemption, but it also can represent a kind of a completion as well in a different kind of way. So he says, you've had three chances, you're done, go home. But then notice how he blames Balaam for not doing what he wanted, but then he blames Yahweh. You could have gotten lots of money, but this God that you swear that you had to do only what he said kept you from getting paid. Kind of like Adam in the garden. It's the woman you put in the garden. He's blaming Yahweh for standing in the way of Balak's or Balaam's money. Verse 12, Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also tell your messengers whom you sent me, if Balak would give me his place full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of Yahweh to do either good or evil by my own will. But whatever Yahweh tells me, I must speak. And now I am about to go back to my people. Come now, and I will advise you as to what this people will do to your people in the future. So now he goes into fourth prophecy. Now notice that this fourth prophecy is not following sacrifices. It's not following payment. This one is now all God. I mean, all of them were all God, but I mean, it's not like Balak said, I'm done. I don't want any more oracles. And it's almost like God's like, yeah, but this is a bonus payment. <laughs> you, 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 you were trying to pay for three and they didn't work out, but I've got a little extra bonus for you. This is what's going to happen. Verse 15, Then he uttered this oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open, the oracle of the one who hears the words of God and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision of the Almighty, although falling flat on the ground with his eyes open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not close at hand. Now notice that language. I see God, but he's not here yet. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, isn't God right here doing things right now? A star will march forth out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the skulls of Moab and the heads of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be his, his possession. Seir, his enemies, will also be his possession. But Israel will act valiantly. A ruler will be established from Jacob. He will destroy the remains of the city. A star will rise. That's not Hollywood. In the ancient world, stars were seen as the angels. They believed that the stars represented the angels. Now, they would not use the word angels, but they would use divine beings. In the same way that the Greeks and the Romans saw Jupiter and Mars and all that kind of stuff as the gods, they viewed the stars as gods. But because... Many kings believed that they were the incarnation of a god or blessed by gods, the gods somehow, or God themselves. They often referred to themselves as stars. So the word star can refer to a divine being or it can refer to a human with absolute power in a kingdom and kingship. And so what he says is this, I see him, but not now. Behold him, but not close at hand. So you see a figure in the future that is going to come, and he is a star that's going to rise up out of Jacob. What's he seeing here? The Messiah. 
Now, in hindsight, we can say that, but Israel has no idea. Like, they know that there's a future king because back in Genesis 49, God said, the scepter will never depart from Judah until it comes to the one whom it belongs to. So notice he's alluding back to Genesis 49 in that. However, he's now looking forward and saying, and he's coming. A star will rise and he will come. When we get to the prophets, the prophets are going to send, say, a star is going to appear over Bethlehem and lead you to him. And that's going to be the very prophecy that's going to point the Magi to Bethlehem to seek the Messiah. The Magi who are astrologers and look to the stars as their gods and their guidance. The reality is that this is the beginning. Now, once again, this doesn't scream Messiah to anybody in the First Testament. Nobody's thinking Messiah, let alone like God, man, and that kind of stuff. Now, looking back, we can see like, oh, wow, this is the seeds of that. But that's what God is doing. He's building. And notice that he says, now notice that this oracle began with, I will tell you what will happen to you, Balak. And he says, you are a king trying to curse this nation. But I'm telling you one day a king will rise up out of this nation. And then he goes on and says, and he will crush the skulls of Moab. It might be a while before you get your payment. <laughs> but you as a king who tries to curse God's people, God's going to raise a king up out of God's people to curse you one day. And he will rule over you and he will crush you as a people. Because these nations, Edom and Moab, who've opposed Israel, even though you're off limits because you're descendants of Abraham, one day you will not be off limits. You'll be in the hands of the Messiah. And Israel will rise up as a valiant ruler and a valiant, mighty warrior. And he will destroy the remains of the city. Now the prophets are going to pick up on that too because they're going to envision a day that a king will come out of Israel and rule over all the nations and that they will all answer to him. Now, even though Christ has come, fulfilling many of the prophecies of the Bible, that part of the prophecy still hasn't happened yet. And so this is what he's pronouncing against Moab. Now, where does Moab fit into that today? I have no idea. But all that matters is God does. And this is his word, and nothing can stop the word of God. Verse 20. Now, Balaam looked at Amalek and delivered this oracle. So now he's like, he's on a roll. He's like, you're not asking for this. But remember, he says, I can only say what God says. So God's just pumping more into him. And so now he gives these really short oracles here. And so Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end will be that will perish. And he looked at the Canaanites and uttered this oracle. So he looks at Amalek. Remember, Amalek were the ones that kept attacking them in the desert. And he says, and all, don't worry, Amalek, you're going to get your judgment too one day. And then it says, Then he looked at the Canaanites and uttered this oracle, Your dwelling places seem strong, and your nest is set on a rocky cliff. Nevertheless, the Canaanite will be consumed. How long will Asher take you away captive? So Asher is a early form of Assyria. And the Canaanites are part of the Midianites. And remember, the Midianites are part of Moab trying to curse Israel too. And so even though Balak, the king of Moab, is the one directly doing this, the Mennonites are kind of in the background saying, yeah, 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 go. 
And he turns to them and says, don't think I've forgotten about you either. One day you're going to be judged and you're going to be condemned. And then he goes on and says, an Asher will come and take you. Meaning, how are you going to be punished? You're going to be punished in the Assyrian captivity. Now remember, Israel is supposed to be protected by the Assyrian captivity, but because they'll eventually do what everybody else did, they'll get swept up in that Assyrian captivity as well. Then he uttered this oracle, Oh, who will survive when God does this? Ships will come from the coasts of Kittim, and it will inflict Asher, and will inflict Eber, and he will also perish forever. Now he basically says nobody can survive. And oh, by the way, even though I will use Asher to defeat all these nations, Asher will get defeated by me too eventually one day. Now that's important because that's going to be picked up by the prophets big time. In fact, that's one of the major arguments that the prophets are going to say over and over and over again is that God can use anybody he wants to punish his people. And all don't worry, those people will get punished too for the way that they treated Israel when they punish them. And so what God is basically saying is this. This is what you can look forward to, Moab. All the nations are going to come under my judgment one day. This is the day of the Lord. And Joel is going to pick that up big time. And this is basically what we know as the second coming of Jesus Christ in a very nutshell kind of a way. And what God is saying is all nations will be dealt with. The sad part is when the prophets come, they lump Israel into that as well. Right now, Israel is safe. But they'll lose that right to be safe later because of their disobedience. And they'll get lumped in. And so what God is now prophesying here is, I have been faithful to Israel and I will always be faithful to Israel. And I will not change my mind. But there will come a day where I will bring judgment on all the nations. And you can't stop Balaam from talking because I've got control of him now. Now this is huge because how many oracles are there here? Seven. This is complete. There is no changing this. This is spoken. We have seen sections of poetry before. Okay, We saw poetry when God spoke to Abraham. We saw poetry when God blessed um, the sons of Jacob through Jacob. But this is the only place in the Bible where you have so many oracles, bam, 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 until we get to the prophets. And the prophets are just like series of oracles. But this means that this is a very, very, very specific and special passage that God is trying to do here. Because one of the questions is like, why is there so much space devoted to this Balaam? Of all the things, like God just kind of goes bam, 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 bam. We get a little paragraph of Moses losing the right to go in the promised land. You're like, that's huge. Shouldn't God develop that a whole lot more? We get one chapter of Israel completely rejecting the promised land. And you're like, shouldn't we get more of that? But now we've got like three chapters here basically devoted to just Balaam, this weird guy that comes out of the middle of nowhere and disappears, and he's giving these oracles with a bunch of names that we're like, we don't even know who half these nations are anymore. And the reality is what God is saying is this, is, this is the promises of God. And he's putting a lot of stock into this oracle because what he's trying to show is that nothing can change this. You need to understand that God is setting a foundation here 
that all the prophets are going to build off of this foundation. All these words that he's using are going to show up again in the prophets over and over and over again. And they're going to develop these and grow these. So the first thing that God is doing is building a foundation for all the prophets to step off of one day. But the other thing he's showing is that you cannot make me break my covenant loyalty and you cannot manipulate this. This is a huge demonstration of Yahweh's power. Because so far, we've only really seen Yahweh in action on a major level and in nature kind of a sense. We saw Yahweh display his great powers in Abraham's life with the defeat of armies militarily, scaring the crap out of Pharaoh to get him to send Sarah and Abraham back. We've seen him bless and open up a dead womb and resurrect it for the birth of um, Isaac and then Jacob and all of them. But that's all nature. We've seen God in the ten plagues. We've seen him in the parting of the Red Sea. We've seen him defeat. Most of what we've seen God is nature. But here, why is there so much space devoted here? Because this is magic. This is demonology. This is witchcraft. This is cursings. And we really haven't seen a whole lot of stories with God in that. And now he's flexing his muscles here and showing you the dark arts themselves can't even change me or hurt me in any kind of way. And this is huge because I know a lot of Christians either completely denounce the dark arts as if that it's all just fake and made up and it's not. Or they become overwhelmingly afraid of it and crippled it. Like, I don't want to get anywhere close to anybody who's a witch or whatever because something like, like it's like a cold that like is contagious and you catch a curse or something. And we live in this fear and it's like, you have the Holy Spirit. And what God is saying is, not even the I mean, and even in Hollywood, even today in all of our world, we know that movies portray the demons and the dark arts as like the scariest thing that we can ever encounter. And this is, God is not flinching. And this is the first time we've really seen God go up against the dark arts, and it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. And that's powerful. But this is also the beginning of God establishing the fact that he is going to deal with all the nations one day. This is one of the clearest points where God continues to develop the idea that all nations, all evil, all power will be dealt with one day. And a lot of that hope that we now are used to thinking about in the church begins here. And so God, this is a very, 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 very important passage. Weird stuff that we're not used to. This is not our cultural vocabulary. It's not what we're coming to, but you have to understand in the ancient world, this is huge. This is speaking volumes to people about who God is. And, is, and here's the thing, too. You need to understand that God is faithful in everything. See, we love talking about the faithfulness of God to honor his promises of love, joy, peace, hope, that kind of stuff. But you have to understand with the faithfulness of God to his promises of blessings, there's also the faithfulness of God and of his judgment. If God is faithful in his character and does not change his mind, then you also have to worship him and honor him and expect him to be faithful in his judgments. But that's what we don't like talking about. And you need to understand the Bible clearly demonstrates over and over again that God is always faithful in everything he says and both blessings and cursings. And that's important because that's going to become a huge theme in the book of Deuteronomy that we're going into next. The book of Deuteronomy, God's faithfulness and blessings and cursings is a huge part. 
And, he, and that's to, to deny the cursings is to deny the faithfulness of God of everything and everything. And that's what God is saying. I am faithful to bless and I am faithful to curse. And a day is coming when all that will happen. And this is the beginning of God's promise to make the world right again. Even if it means uncomfortableness and chaos and judgment for us and the process. Because that's what Israel will go through. Any questions? These people um, that were making the uh, sacrifices to their gods, you're saying that somehow their gods through the evil, um, the devil maybe, were responding to all, all that? Because in my mind, I just think, well, they're just not real. They are real. The Bible makes it very clear the demonic world is real. In Deuteronomy, which we'll get to, God says, when you were sacrificing to the gods, you were sacrificing to the demons. When you were worshiping the idols, you were worshiping the demons. The gods themselves are not real. Think of them like a costume or a mask or a facade. But the power behind them is very real. And that's where you may understand is that in some places, God, like in Isaiah 40 and 41, 42 and stuff says, what is an idol? You, you, you dumb people. You, you cook your food with this wood and then you build your house with this wood and then you carve it into an image and you worship it as if it was a god. That doesn't make sense. These idols aren't real. Now, a lot of Christians know that passage and they immediately latch onto that. But at the same time, then God turns around and says, oh yes, these powers are really real and you really truly are following demonic powers and you're really being manipulated by them. And you're like, what do you do with that? Well, one way he's trying to show that compared to him, the idea of worshiping these gods is just stupid and pathetic and illogical. Like, why would you go to something that's represented by a piece of wood and, and, and something that is not even the most all-powerful god in the universe? So that's, but he's not denying the existence of the power behind the gods. He's denying the, the power, the all-power of the gods, and the reality of, like, you truly represent the most important thing to you with a piece of wood. But in the other sense, he's very much making it clear that you really truly are following something. And you are giving yourself over to something. And that's a very clear picture later, in this, especially like when we get to kings, Israel is going to attack the king of Moab. Moab come back again. And they're attacking the king of Moab, and God is with Israel and giving them victory in battle. And then it says that the king of Moab went and sacrificed his son to his God, and his God fought back at Israel because of that human sacrifice. And Israel became so afraid of what they were seeing that they lost their trust in God, and Moab defeats Israel. And the Bible basically says their God lashed out in divine wrath against Israel in response to a child's sacrifice. Yeah, today we would know that, or some kind of demons. Is it, is it Satan specifically? Probably not, because remember, Satan can only be in one place at one time. Only God is omnipresent. But is there some demonic power behind it? Yes. Is it the same demon behind the same God all the time? I don't know. The point is there is some demon or a group of demons that are behind these gods, and they might be different demons at different times, or da-da-da-da-da-da. The, the, and yes, we've made up these stories as humans, and most of these stories are dumb and stupid because they're mythological about Zeus and that kind of stuff. 
but there's something really powerful behind it. And, and remember, the demons don't care what you really do as long as you're not worshiping Yahweh. And so they're not really interested in like, oh, are you really truly worshiping me or da-da-da-da-da-da. They, they're, just, they're just here to deceive you and distract you. It is, because we, we live in this dichotomy where in one sense we come to church and we say, yes, I believe this world exists because Jesus says it does and he's casting demons out of people in the Gospels and people are possessed and the guy of the garrison is, can break chains because the demon is giving him the power to break chains and we know that's true because God forbid we say that story is made up and false because it's in the Bible and we put our whole salvation in the trustworthiness of the Bible. But then we walk into the world in our brainwashed, atheistic, scientific society. Not that science is bad, but that we've allowed science to kill God rather than appreciate that science is the creation and the language of God. And we don't really live or think that way. And, and I think I've mentioned this book before, but Total Truth is a book you've got to read if you want to understand this dichotomy. Because she goes through that dichotomy and explains how we are able to go into church and amen one thing, and then we go into our life and we live a completely different way. And I don't mean in a moral behavior sense, because that's what we typically think of. We're like, oh, you're one person on Sunday morning and a different person in the week. We usually think of morally. Now, moral, you have to realize that the, 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 the worst thing that you could ever do is not your moral behavior, but your worldview. The way that you think about God, the way you think about yourself, and the way you think about the world, if that's not right, that leads to all your behavior. And it doesn't matter how morally good you are, if your worldview is not right, you're still not right. And so you need to understand that we have more of an American, Hellenistic, Greco world, Roman um, kind of worldview of life. And I know that's a lot of things that maybe a lot of people haven't thought about, but there are books that you can read that will really, truly help you understand this. The way that we think about God has been more shaped by the Greeks' way of thinking about the gods than it really has been by the Bible. Because it's a lot easier to be influenced by our culture than it is to sit down and read a Bible and really plow through this thing on a daily basis. This is a complicated thing. The beauty of it is so simple that a child can understand the gospel and fall in love with God and, and accept Christ and be saved. But at the same time, it's so complicated that it really takes true committed research to allow this thing to change your worldview. It's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be transformed. And we are more transformed by our movies and music and our media and our culture than we are by the Word of God. And that's not a knock. That's, that's for me, too. America is a very powerful culture to compete against. It is overwhelming visually and sound bites and media constantly. I mean, even if you faithfully dive into the Word of God for a couple hours every day, it's still, oh my gosh, this country is like a pinball machine. It's hard to get away from that. And so the reality is we have to realize, yeah, it is, because this is what we've got to retrain ourselves in. There's a very real demonic spiritual realm out there that we face every single day, and we don't even realize it because we've allowed Darwinism to shape the way that we think about the spiritual realm. Even though deep down inside we reject it, 
on a theological premises, we have not rejected on a worldview premise. Because worldviews are a lot harder to change. And you know when you've hit a worldview in somebody. You can say, do you believe this theologically? And people are like, yeah. But most people don't know what their worldview is. But you know when you hit a worldview, when the minute you say something and somebody says, that is not possible. That's a worldview. And if that phrase contradicts the Bible, then you have a much harder task now. It's one thing to teach somebody facts in Sunday school. Do you believe God is all-powerful? Oh, yeah, that's pretty convincing. It's a lot harder to change somebody from that's not possible. And the other way you hit a worldview is their fears. The minute they say that's not possible or that can't happen or that's not true or they're afraid of something, that's, that's, the, that's your true worldview. That's your true worldview. And that's why we need to take our, our fears and our that can't happen and we need to bring it to the Word of God and allow that to shape our worldview. And that's hard because worldviews are a part of our DNA. And they're woven into our say in, a, in an unconscious from the minute you were born into this culture kind of way. The only way you can really truly change worldviews is to read books that are helping you process your worldviews at the same time that you're reading the Bible to guide you. So you need to read a book like Total Truth that tells you what your worldview is as an American and then go to the Bible. And now that you consciously know what your worldview is, you can go to the Bible and replace it with a new worldview. And that requires a lot of reading and a lot of thought. And then you need to do it as a group because transformation happens in community. And when you're worshiping your entertainment and your money and your comfortable life and keeping up with the Joneses, there's a demonic power behind that trying to get you to do that. Are you literally worshiping a demon? Probably not because we have a different way of... But are you allowing a demon to manipulate you into a obsession with materialism and entertainment and a comfortable life in the American dream? Yeah. And if you want a better understanding of that, read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. That's a really good book to help you. It's basically a demon writing to a younger demon of how to tempt a human into all this kind of stuff. And C.S. Lewis has got a really good finger on the culture and how things work. But beyond that, how much... And that's the thing, too, because you've got three things going against you. You've got, according to the New Second Testament, you've got the demonic world who is seeking to destroy you and sift you like a devouring lion. You've got your own flesh that is sinful, wants to do its own thing. And even if you got rid of every single demon in the entire universe, you still would be a screwed up sinner because your own flesh is corrupted. And then you've got the world that has been influenced by the flesh and the demonic world who've now got their own agenda, who's trying to persuade you into their agenda too. And so at all times you're battling your own flesh, the worldviews of the world and the political agendas and the media, as well as the demonic world. Where one begins and the other one leaves off, I have no idea. My only answer is to go to Christ and surrender to him and beg for help. So, I mean, that's really... And we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You don't really need to figure out what one is really going after you. You just need to go to Christ and allow him to defeat it all. And that's ultimately what you see is when you go through the Bible, the Bible, this is one of the very few places where God separates things. But most of the time in Israel's battles, it's military and it's gods and it's everything all at once and God doesn't sort them out he just shows up and defeats it and it's the same thing like I grew up with a lot of 
what I believe were very real demonic attacks as a child when I was sleeping and that kind of stuff. And for a long time, I couldn't stop it. And I've discovered that when you call upon the name of Jesus, it stops everything. And then my daughter started having some nightmares. And rather than let them, I began to immediately teach them that. I said, you need to call on the name of Jesus. You need to believe it. And I would pray that I know they don't fully understand this. And I don't know where their faith is yet because they're too young to even figure that out. But I would go to my bedroom and pray that God would actually answer that prayer so that they would see how powerful God is and that would lead to a faith in him. I mean, what a powerful experience as a child to see God like that. And something did appear. And they call in the name of Jesus. And Cassidy very much, very quickly came in and like told me, and she was so excited. And that was like a really incredible day in my life when my little girl experienced the power of the name of Jesus like so young at an age. Here's the thing. I don't know whether she truly encountered something demonic or if it was just her imagination. And I don't really care to know whether it was truly demonic or it was imagination. All I know is that God is sovereign over both. And when she called upon him and trusted in him, whether it was her imagination seeing things that weren't really there or something really truly showed up, it doesn't matter. He conquered it and she saw that and her faith grew. And so it's not our job to sort out what is what and what and what. Our job is just when something is contrary to the word of God, we call upon him and he defeats it and our faith grows. So were they really truly worshiping demons at that moment or something else or a combination of everything? I don't know, but God defeated it all. And that's the message of the Bible that it keeps trying to show. If God is sovereign here and here and here and here, Abraham then makes the conclusion that there is nothing that he cannot do. And I don't understand the universe. I don't understand the spiritual realm. I can't even begin to comprehend what can and cannot happen. But I do know a God who created it all and established the rules that govern everything and he can change and dominate it any time that he wants because he's the source of it all. And I go to him and he figures it all out. The same thing with guardian angels. When people pray for guardian angels, I don't do that. If God chooses to send a human to protect me or an angel to protect me or uses me to protect me or a financial account to protect me, that's his choice. I just pray to him and let him choose what to use to protect me or guide me. Because I'm afraid that if I pray for something else, then that thing will slowly be over time become my God. So it's not my job to figure out how to fix it or where the problem is coming from. It's just my job to go to the ultimate source. And I think that's what we need to spend time on. Does that make sense? Good question.